0: Hi, I'm Kyle Carlson. You're listening to one of my messages from Imprint Community Church in Northeast Baltimore. I pray that this message will encourage you in your walk with Jesus Christ. Visit us online at imprintcommunity.org and worship with us in person on Sundays at 10 a.m. at Seven Oaks Elementary School. Enjoy the message. If you've been to a bookstore um, or even browsed Amazon, Uh, you've probably noticed that there's a very popular genre of books. The genre I'm speaking of is the how-to manual. It's the book that explains to you how to do various things or to grow in particular skills. Or maybe there's some task that you would like to figure out and you're not sure how to do it. Well, there's probably a book that'll tell you how to go about it. We were actually just talking in the hallway about how YouTube has kind of replaced how-to books in some ways. So I don't know how to fix my weed eater. Uh, YouTube, hey, look, there's a guy fixing my weed eater. And so I figure out how to do it. And so YouTube also plays the the role of the how-to manual uh, many times in our lives today. But I think we all can appreciate the value of learning how to do something that we didn't know how to do and that we wanted to learn how to do, or that, in whatever case, we needed to learn how to do. So having somebody tell us, here is how this works, here is how you go about doing this, is a valuable tool. In the verses that we're going to read in John chapter 14 today, Jesus gives us something of a how-to guide. And essentially, he's going to tell us how to carry out the work of God. In fact, the work of God, the work of the Father, is a phrase that uh, that Jesus uses uh, throughout these verses, and indeed, it's a phrase that has been uh, littered throughout Jesus' speech in John's Gospel. And we'll begin to see them coming together as Jesus is giving some final instructions to his disciples before he goes to the cross, and then rises, and then just a few days after that, will ascend to heaven, and so. As we follow Jesus and his disciples on this last night before his crucifixion, he has been telling them some bad news, right? Some things that are going to happen. One of them is going to betray him. Peter, who is their champion and leader, is going to deny that that he even knows Jesus. Jesus is going to leave, right? He's saying, only a little while am I yet with you. And so the disciples are understandably anxious, worried about What might happen? Nervous about what they're going to do after Jesus is gone. And of course, they've devoted three years of their life at this point to following Jesus, learning from Jesus, caring about the things that Jesus cares about, trying to carry on the work of the kingdom of Jesus. So now as they're hearing Jesus is going away, the question begins to rise. How do we continue the work of God in Jesus' absence? So Jesus begins in our verses today to explain a bit of how they can go about the work of God. So I'm going to read for you verses 8 through 14 of John chapter 14. Beginning in verse 8 of John 14. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to, them, said to him, that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Some powerful words there from Jesus, some famous words, well loved words of Jesus. And I would suggest, as we'll see as we go through these verses, some often misunderstood and thus misapplied words of Jesus. So I think the context of this conversation and the point that Jesus is making about carrying on the works of God uh, will help us to understand what he means by some of these bold and beautiful promises that he makes down in verses 12 to 14. So he essentially does three things in these verses. First, he tells us what the work of God is. You have to read a little bit between the lines here. But he tells us what the work of God is. Second, he promises that we will participate in his work. And then thirdly, he gives us an essential tool for the task. If you're going to participate in the work of God, here is an essential tool that you will need along the way. So let's take each of those in turn. Number one, he tells us what the work of God is. That happens in the context of Philip making this request of Jesus in verse 8. Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Now, of course, Jesus had just told his disciples when Thomas asked, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus made his famous declaration, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so we talked last week about the exclusive claim of Jesus, that he alone will give access to the Father and can gain a sinner, a relationship, and a standing with God. And then he said this in verse 7, if you look back, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him which continues a theme of Jesus throughout John's gospel of his union with the Father. He speaks of the, the relationship between Father and Son, such that Jesus is the one who has been sent by the Father. He says that the works I do, I do because they are the will of the Father. The words I speak, I speak by the authority of the Father. And so the oneness of Jesus as the Son of God with God the Father has been a consistent theme of Jesus' speech throughout John's gospel. And so he returns to that here. And we start to see by Philip's question that they're still not quite getting it. So Philip asks again, if you'll just show us the Father, it would be enough for us. And I think we could probably understand and identify with Philip's probably exasperation at this point. Like, why does everything have to be... like? foggy and in kind of mysterious speech. Why can't you just plainly reveal to us, right? Show us your glory. Show us who you are. Show us the Father. Of course, he has no idea what he's asking, because even Moses, back in the book of Exodus, when he asked to see God, God gave him this crazy, merciful, glimpse of himself, but he said, okay, in order to do this, you're going to have to hide in the cleft of a mountain, and I'm going to pass by, and you can only look at the back of me as I go, lest you be struck dead, right? The Bible says no one has seen God at any time, and so it's a big, bold request to say, will you just show me the Father? Will you just show me your glory? Let me me just put my eyes on you. Because in a sense, you're saying, reveal to me more than I can handle, right? Reveal to me more than I will be able to endure. So Jesus mercifully reveals the Father to us because they share this divine nature. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. And so he begins to question Philip and gently rebuke him. Have I been with you so long? and you still don't know me? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. We learned that at the very beginning of this gospel when John said of Jesus, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Down in one eighteen, he says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. So Jesus, as the Son of God, in human flesh, reveals God. So in a form that people can handle, because he looks like one of them, right? Because he's truly God and truly man. So Jesus again points out his union with the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Don't you believe this, right? That's an act of faith. It takes faith to trust that Jesus is who he says he is. And then he even says to him down in verse 11, if you don't believe on account of the words, believe on the account of the works themselves, right? Because I've done all of these things that demonstrate that I am who I say I am, that demonstrate my oneness with the Father. Now, where I want to camp out a little bit is on the phrase in verse 10. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. That's the sentence that I think is kind of the center point of that paragraph. Obviously, he's reiterating the truth that the Father and the Son are one. Jesus and the Father are one. But then he talks about his words. The words that I speak, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me, you would expect him to say, speaks for me, or I speak his words. But that's not what he says. He says, the Father who dwells in me does his works. The words I speak to you are the Father's works. So he, in, he links the words of Jesus and the works of the Father. We'll come down to more of that in just a moment. But let's talk about this phrase, the, the works of the Father. We're inclined to look at these verses and think he's, he's talking about miracles, and I think those are probably included in this. So when he says, whoever believes in me will do the works that I do and greater works, if we have in our minds miracles, it gets a little bit hard to understand. So I, I want to walk through briefly what, where we've seen the idea of the work of God or the work of the Father in John's Gospel before. Back in John chapter 5, Jesus has healed a lame man on the Sabbath which creates a controversy, and the Pharisees are accusing him of blasphemy for doing work on the Sabbath. And in Jesus' response to them, in Jesus' speech, he says, The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. And then if you were to continue reading those verses, you'll find the works that he's talking about. Verse 21 says, For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. So the works of the Father include the giving of life. Then verse 22, He says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So the works of God include judgment, giving of life, dispensing of judgment, Verse 23, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So the greater works that Jesus speaks of in John 5 are the giving of life, the dispensing of judgment, leading to the worship of the Son, that all may honor the Son. That's the work of God, the work of the Father that He speaks of in chapter 5. Just one chapter later in John chapter 6 after he has fed a multitude of thousands with a couple of pieces of fish and a couple of loaves of bread, the crowd asks him, what must we do to be doing the works of the Father? So they use that phrase, and they ask Jesus, what must we do to be doing the works of the Father? Here's how he answered them in chapter 6, verse twenty-eight or 29. Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in Him who He has sent. That's the work of God, that you believe in Him who He has sent. And then he goes down to say that whoever believes in the Son of Man will never be hungry and never be thirsty again. And indeed, they will have eternal life. So the work of God is believing upon Jesus Christ as the Son of God and, as a result, receiving eternal life. There again we find the theme of giving life through belief in Jesus as the work of God or the work of the Father. One more place we'll look at is John chapter 9, where Jesus healed a man who had been blind from birth. When Jesus and his disciples came upon this man, you may remember the disciples had a little theological debate about the cause of his blindness. They said, Lord, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that led to his blindness? And Jesus' answer was, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. That same phrase, works of God, might be displayed in him. And if you continue through that chapter, where Jesus restores his sight, the way that it ends is the man returns to Jesus, and Jesus asks him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man says, tell me who he is, so that I may believe. And Jesus says, it's me. And then says, I believe. And then he says to him, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. And the Pharisees heard him say that, and they said, Are you calling us blind? And of course, indeed, he is. Not physically, but spiritually. So even what Jesus does through the healing of this blind man in John 9 is pointing us toward salvation of those who have spiritual eyes to see him and believe in him and judgment toward those who are spiritually blind and reject him and do not believe in him. And that is summed up in that phrase in in John 9, 3, the works of God would be displayed. What works would be displayed? Namely, salvation for those who have spiritual eyes and believe in him and judgment for those who reject him. And refuse to see him for who he is. So throughout John's gospel, there are other examples that I could bring up. Throughout John's gospel, the work of God, the work of the Father is giving eternal life to sinners through belief in the Son of God. That's what God is up to. That's what God is after. That's what John himself is writing this gospel for. You remember the theme verses, if you will, toward the end of this gospel that we read just about every week at the end of our service where he says, I have written these things that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Believe in the Son of God, have life. There's a theme that runs throughout John's gospel and throughout Jesus' Speeches, if you will, and his speaking to the crowd. So when he says to Philip and the other disciples in John 14:10, The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. It's that very same phrase, the very same Greek word, ergon. It's not the word for miracle or sign. It's just the word for work. So the work of the Father is accomplished through the words of Jesus. Jesus' words bring about The work of the Father. Which work is that? The work of saving sinners through belief in the Son of God. So we cannot miss the intimate connection between the words of Jesus and the work of God. And of course the words of Jesus taken as a whole concern His identity as the Son of God, the kingdom that He is bringing his death that he will endure on the cross to cleanse sinners his resurrection remember all the way back in john chapter 2 he said or john chapter 3 he said to the pharisees tear this temple down and i will rebuild it in three days speaking not of the literal temple but of his body you will crucify me and I will rise again. And so his death and his resurrection have been predicted and proclaimed throughout this gospel. And these are the means through which God accomplishes his work in the world that is, the saving of sinners. So if we're going to know how to join God in his work, right, if, if these disciples, now the 11, right, the 12 minus Judas, who has now gone out, if these 11 apostles are to follow in the footsteps of Jesus and carry on his work of saving sinners, essentially that's the work of God, through them, saving sinners through belief in the Son, first of all, you've got to know what the work is. And so Jesus explains to them, and mercifully, therefore, to us, that the work of God is the saving of sinners through belief in the Son of God, proclaimed through Words proclaimed through this announcement of the gospel. So he tells us what the work of God is. The second thing he does is he promises us that we will participate in his work. Wouldn't be good enough to just say, here's what the work of God is. My words accomplish the work of God, the saving of sinners, through belief in the Son. But he makes a very broad and bold promise in verse 12 when he says truly truly i say to you and he always uses that little phrase when he means this is important i want you to hear it right its emphasis whoever believes in me will also do the works that i do now some promises in the scriptures are intended for the particular audience to which they were given and so we need to be careful when we're reading the Bible and we find something that sounds like a promise to not sort of bring something over directly into our lives that Jesus intended for that particular audience that wouldn't apply to us. That can have damaging effects in our faith. But this particular promise is not only for the apostles. It's not only for these 11 who will become the leaders of the first generation of the Christian movement. Because he says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. That includes us. That includes all Christians throughout history who have trusted in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, if anyone believes in me, he will do the work that I do. He will carry on the work of God through the announcing of the Son of God, crucified and risen for sinners and Applied by faith, right? So, everyone who believes in me will do the works that I do. What works? Remember, the work of saving sinners by belief in the Son of God through the proclamation of Jesus' words. That's the work that he's saying that we are going to do. We have been given a job to do, it's a basic reality of what it means to be a Christian. It means repenting of your sins and trusting in Jesus for your own salvation, but it leads to a commissioned life. If you are a Christian, you have been commissioned by your king to carry on his work. So if you say, I am a Christian, I am a follower of Jesus, I have trusted in Jesus for the salvation, uh, for, for salvation from my sin and relationship with God, however... I'm okay just kind of taking it easy and just being comfortable in that, and I don't think I need to work too hard or really give much attention to what my life looks like or the things I pursue or how I spend my money or anything like that. Then you're missing an essential part of what it means to follow Jesus. In fact, the basic definition of follow Jesus is do what he does, right? Follow in his footsteps. And so he says, You will carry on my work. Whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And a primary means of that mission is the words of Jesus. Going back to verse 10. The words that I speak, not on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Through my words, the Father does his work. So if you're going to carry on that work, Guess what you're going to have to do? Say his words. The words of Jesus, the message of Jesus, the message of the gospel must play a central role in our work for God or carrying on the work of God is the better way to say that. You may have heard there's there's this quote that I I think is misattributed to St. Francis of Assisi in like the 13th century. And it says, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. Have you ever heard that saying before? And I think it's trying to convey the idea that the character of our lives matters for how we relate to outsiders, for how we present uh, who Jesus is to the people around us who don't yet know him. And so lives of virtue and love and those kinds of things are a marker of a Christian and can be a bridge to uh, to an evangelistic, if you will, conversation with an unbeliever. But I think, to the extent that it gives us the idea that we can faithfully preach the gospel without speaking, I think it leads us astray. I think it misses the mark. I don't think Francis ever said it, frankly. But if we think we can faithfully proclaim the gospel, by just being nice neighbors, by just smiling at the courtesy clerk at the grocery store, or by handing a couple of dollars to the homeless guy down the street, or whatever. If we think that is enough to proclaim the kingdom of God and announce the gospel, we've missed it. Because Jesus himself says, how are you going to carry out my works? Through my words. The words of Jesus must play an essential role in our announcement of the kingdom of God. The church of Jesus cannot accomplish the mission of Jesus without proclaiming the words of Jesus. So we got to remember here he's not just ta- he's not talking merely at least about signs about powerful acts of you know miracles. When he says, the works that I do. He's not talking about healing people and raising the dead and things like that. Because look at this next thing he says. You'll do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do. Okay, so if we're talking about miracles, if we're talking about the powerful signs that Jesus performed, seven of which are recorded in John's Gospel in the first half that we read, you're going to be hard-pressed to find how everyone who believes in Jesus, that's what he says, anyone who believes in me, is going to do greater things than Jesus did. When's the last time you met a a Christian who is restoring sight to blind people, healing lame people who cannot walk, raising the dead? Have you met a Christian that's doing those things on a regular basis? I sure haven't. It's not happening in my life, I can guarantee you that. So if we're talking about the miracles of Jesus, and he says, everyone who believes in me is going to do greater things than this, I'm not even sure what that means. What does that look like? And I would think all of our lives should be just characterized all the time by crazy, miraculous happenings, moment by moment, right? That's what that sounds like. And indeed, there are those who suggest... That's what that means, and we should expect our lives to be marked by the miraculous and the the act of power that sort of demonstrates beyond any doubt that God is behind it. And I'm not saying in any way that God is not capable of performing a miracle, and that there's no way that God would ever do anything miraculous in our day. In fact, I believe he does at times and in his ways and for his purposes. But if we Take here that Jesus is saying, everyone who believes in me will do the same kind of miraculous things that I have done, and even greater things than those, I think we're going to be setting ourselves up for disappointment, disillusionment, discouragement, because we're going to go, what's wrong with me? Why isn't this the norm in my life? I've been praying for healing. I've been praying for this neighbor. I've been praying for this job. I've been praying whatever it is. I've got this friend that's ill and dying, and I've been pleading with God and powerfully, faithfully praying that he would be healed, and yet he doesn't seem to be healed. In fact, we could probably all point to someone in our lives that didn't get healed. Do we go, God failed because he didn't hold up his end of the bargain? He said we'd do greater things. Or do we assume, I must have just not really believed God enough. So the fact that my loved one died is my fault because I didn't believe hard enough. That's the kind of thing, and I've seen it in friends who have kind of taken that path. And it leads to discouragement. It leads to confusion. God, what are you doing? Why are you not showing up the way that you said you would show up? So let me say again, that's not what Jesus means. Jesus isn't failing to uphold his end of a promise that he made. He's promising something different than that. Not that we're going to be regularly trafficking in the miraculous, but that we will be partnering with the Spirit of God in bringing life to dead souls through the proclamation of Christ crucified and risen. And frankly, that's a bigger miracle than healing cancer or raising someone from the dead. And we get to play a part in that. But in what sense is it greater? Right? We can get, okay, so we're doing the works of Jesus by proclaiming the good news and by seeing God work in people's lives. How is it greater than what Jesus does? And I think the clue that we get comes in the phrase he says right after that. He says, greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. So Christians are going to be able to do greater works, the saving of sinners through the proclamation of the gospel, greater works than him precisely because he's leaving the earth and returning to heaven, because that's what's about to happen here, because I am going to the Father. And so I think he's pointing to the reality that he will tell them explicitly in just a couple of verses that we don't get to talk about until next week, namely the sending of the Holy Spirit. He says down in verse 16, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth you know him for he dwells with you and he will be in you. That is a fundamentally new relationship between people and Holy Spirit that will happen after Jesus ascends to heaven and then sends the Spirit down. I'm getting ahead of myself and preaching next week's message, but I think he's pointing to that very reality. When he says you're going to do greater works than these because I'm going to heaven and I'm going to send the Holy Spirit to you. And that means that the work of God and the proclamation of the gospel and his saving of sinners can take place anywhere that the church exists. Because Jesus, as a man, can only be in one place at one time. When he's in Jerusalem talking to his disciples, he is only in Jerusalem with his disciples. When he's in heaven and he sends the Spirit, guess what? He's everywhere. The Spirit is wherever Christians are. So the works that can be done in his name are broader and bigger and farther reaching than Jesus could even do when he was on the earth in this one location, which again is a bit mind-boggling. Some of that Trinitarian math going on goes, oh my goodness, it's bigger than I can totally get, right? But I think that's what he's pointing to. So here's the point of all of that. When he makes this promise that we will participate in the work of God, we will participate in the saving of sinners through faith in the Son of God by announcing the words and message of Jesus, here's what it comes down to. We have got to live on purpose. We won't find ourselves accidentally doing the works of God. We need to give ourselves to this task on purpose in our days and our moments and our conversations and our relationships and our plans and our time. We've got to train ourselves by God's help, plead with him to train our eyes to see our lives and relationships in this context. Lord, you've commissioned me. Lord, I have a job to do to announce the crucified and risen Christ and salvation in His name. Help me to be faithful. And I believe He'll answer that for you. So He tells us what the work of God is. He promises us that we will participate in that work in an an even greater way because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in the church. And then finally, he gives us an essential tool for the task. And it comes in the form of another bold promise. Look at verses 13 and 14. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. What's the tool? Prayer. Prayer prayer an incredible promise here if you ask in my name i will do it there's only one condition really placed on that phrase and it is that or on that promise and it is the phrase in my name if you will pray in my name i will do it but be careful This is another verse that has often been misunderstood, I think probably yanked out of its context, to know what he's talking about by the works of God and what kinds of things he's telling his disciples to be doing. And we take it out of the context and we see this prayer that says, if you pray in my name, I'll do whatever you ask. And we go, okay. So if I just tack on that little phrase, in Jesus' name, amen, to the end of whatever I have just said, Jesus is obligated to do it. Right? Anybody ever prayed like that before? Anybody ever been in the company of people who pray like that? Lord, whatever I ask in his name, said I got to do it. You know, I, I really like a new car. You know, my little Kia Rio is like it gets me from A to B, but there's nothing too, you know, fancy or interesting about it. I'd really love to have a big pickup. I'm just going to start praying in Jesus name, give me a pickup truck. Lord, I believe in Jesus' name that you are going to give me a pickup truck. And not an old pickup truck, but a new pickup truck. And not a small pickup truck, but a big pickup truck. You ever heard people do this kind of thing? Where's that going to lead me? If that's what I think Jesus means, just tell me what you want and tack in Jesus' name at the end of it and say you believe it really hard and it's going to happen. Where is that going to lead me when the pickup truck never shows up in my driveway? Or the money, yeah, it's going to put me in debt probably is what it's going to do. So that's not what Jesus means. Just tell me whatever you want and tack on this phrase and I got it covered. God's not a genie. He's not just rub the lamp in the right way and say the right little mantra and you get whatever you want. That's not what he means. This promise is in the context of The work of God that he has explained and commissioned us to. You will participate in the work of God. Namely, the saving of sinners through belief in the Son of God. Through the announcement of the gospel. That is Christ crucified and risen for sinners. You will participate in the works of God. So here's the deal. Anything you ask for in my name. That is according to my Character, according to my teaching, in line with my desire, in line with my purpose for you, may I say, in line with the task of partnering with God and His work in the world, I'll do it. If you ask me for anything that will advance the gospel, that will help you be strengthened, be more effective and more fruitful in your work for the kingdom of God, I will do it. One other little clarifying phrase he says is, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. And he repeats it, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. So prayer is an essential tool the weapons strapped to our backs as we enter the battlefield, if you will, that we must use in accomplishing our mission. And if what we ask for is intended to honor the name of Jesus and help bring people to faith in him and thus glorify God by fulfilling his mission, he will certainly answer it. Here's the question we've got to ask ourselves. How many of our prayers in that sense are really In Jesus' name. How many prayers do we utter that have virtually no connection to the work of God in the world? That have no true heart behind it of I want God to be glorified. I want God to be honored and seen as beautiful and true and righteous. That's what I want for my life. How many prayers have we offered that have no connection to that heart? Quite a few for myself. So, it's easy enough, simple enough to say, we should be more devoted to prayer. We should be more dependent on God in prayer. But it's even more appropriate and important to say, we should pray in prayer. The name of Jesus. We should pray not just by tacking on a mantra at the end of our selfish requests, but that we should shape our prayers around the work of God in the world. His commissioning of us to partner with Him in bringing the good news to the world around us. What more important thing could there be for Jesus to tell His disciples before He leaves them? He's been training them for three years, and He's about to leave do you think he's really saying, just ask some selfish stuff and put my name on the end of it and I'll give it to you? No. He's saying, you have the job of carrying on the work that I've been doing. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit to help you do it, and I'm giving you the tool of prayer. And if you will just plead with me to glorify my name, to make you more effective and fruitful, I will certainly do it. I've been challenged this week by the example of a guy named Epaphras in the book of Colossians. Not a major player in the Bible, but an associate of the Apostle Paul, one who at various times accompanies Paul in his ministries and kind of speaks for some of these local churches and then carries letters and messages back to them. In the book of Colossians, Paul speaks of this guy Epaphras uh, toward the end in chapter 4. He says, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. The description of Epaphras struggling in prayer on behalf of these people, that convicts me. That makes me feel like my prayers are probably pretty anemic a lot of the time. My prayers are not characterized by struggling on behalf of others, on behalf of those who don't yet know Christ, or on behalf of those who do know Christ but need to grow in their maturity and their understanding. The example of Epaphras calls to me and compels me. Struggle in prayer. And pray for the right things. Pray for the things that will honor Christ and advance the gospel and strengthen the church and her witness in the world. And then struggle in that prayer. And trust that Jesus will answer those prayers and make good on His promise. If you ask me anything in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son, I will do it. So church, we have a commission. We have a task that's been handed down to us by the Master Himself, the Lord Jesus. To partner with Him in the work that God is doing through His words, through the proclamation of the teaching of Jesus and the message that He has taken sins upon Himself and borne them on a cross. And that He's risen from the dead to defeat death and the grave for anyone who would place their faith in Him. We get to partner with Him. We get to be His mouthpiece. And we have the Holy Spirit empowering us and the prayers of people in desperate need of His help that He promises He will answer. So may we, this week, just in the days to come, have an open eye to the work that God is doing and wants to do around us in the circles of influence that surround each one of us, the relationships we have, the connecting points that we have. And let's ask the Lord, will you help me to make a difference for you? Will you give me courage? Give me wisdom. Give me words to speak. Give me faithfulness as your messenger that the Son may be glorified. Let me pray.